According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the rate of hospitalization for septicemia or sepsis more than doubled from 2000 through 2008. The CEC points to several possible reasons for the jump, including increased coding of these conditions due to greater clinical awareness. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Michael Klompas, Associate Professor of Population Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute, and an infectious disease physician and epidemiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Klompas has co-authored a perspective article on the problems of regulatory mandates for sepsis care. Dr. Klompas, as you note in your article, multiple studies have suggested that the incidence of sepsis is increasing dramatically. Where do these studies come from and what do they reveal about possible causes? So thank you very much, first of all, for the opportunity to be able to speak with you, Steve. It's a real pleasure. The studies that have demonstrated or suggested an increase in sepsis incidence uh, are all based on analyses of administrative data sets, meaning health insurance data sets or IC9 codes for patients who are hospitalized. There have been a number of studies over the years that have used this strategy. There are three frequent methods for using claims codes in order to assess the incidence of sepsis. Some look directly for sepsis codes themselves. Others look for patients who have evidence of infection and codes for organ dysfunction at the same time. And they've all suggested there's been a big increase in the number of hospitalizations with sepsis over time. Our hypothesis, though, is that part of this, these observed trends might be due to changes in coding practices themselves rather than necessarily an increase in the, the rate of sepsis per se. You note in your article that New York State, acting in response to the well-publicized death of a 12-year-old boy from unrecognized sepsis, now mandates the use of sepsis protocols. So to what extent do you think that policy in this area has been driven by media and public reactions to individual cases and to what extent is there really broad-based evidence to support it? I think that we can make no mistake that a patient who comes into the hospital with sepsis, that's a devastating condition and is associated with a very high mortality rate. It's not surprising that patients, their families, clinicians, and advocates are very concerned about this problem. There have been some cases that have won a great deal of media attention. Again, the most notable is this terrible case of a 12-year-old boy in New York, a young boy by the name of Rory, presented to the emergency department a couple of times with what was, we now recognize in retrospect was incipient sepsis. And only when his case was full-blown and obvious was it ultimately picked up and treated. Unfortunately, that was too late and he succumbed. Because of cases like that, consumer groups and policymakers have been very, very concerned about this degree and, and that interplay between devastating illness that occasionally makes it to the headlights has, I think, very much driven policy. And New York is simply the most obvious and advanced case of this. There are other examples of national policy groups that are moving in the space as well. And CDC themselves, as the national stations, uh, as the country's public health agency, has also been perceptive and responsive to this increasing concern on behalf of the public and the media. As you say in your article, the diagnosis of sepsis is subjective. At your own institution, how much variation do you think there is regarding those subjective aspects of the diagnosis? It's not something we've ever been able to formally quantify in our own institution, but I do know that clinically speaking, as an internal medicine infectious disease provider, I do see variation. There are patients we find who we do believe are septic with infection and have not been recognized as such by the clinicians ahead of time. So we see both under-recognition and then more strikingly, I also see cases of over-recognition. And this is probably the greater part of the worry for this condition is that the syndrome that looks like sepsis, which is fever, tachycardia, 
tachycardia, patients simply not looking well, turns out to be relatively common in hospitalized patients. And those patients get put onto a very aggressive treatment pathway these days with fluids, with antibiotics. And my gestalt experience has been that a good proportion of those patients turn out not to actually have infections after all. That's really the, the, the worry end of the spectrum, more on the, the over-treatment uh, side, despite the public worry that it's more of an under-treatment issue. So that can bring us back to the regulatory aspects of this issue. You cite in your article the mandate regarding the rapid treatment of community-acquired pneumonia as a cautionary tale. So tell us a bit about that mandate. Where did the impetus for that come from? Historically speaking, there was recognition that delayed treatment of antibiotics for infectious conditions associated with increased mortality or other negative outcomes. So in response to that some years ago, I believe it was the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services implemented a rule that patients who came into an emergency department with community-acquired pneumonia had to be treated with antibiotics within four hours of arrival. As any clinician who's worked in an emergency department knows, though, there are lots of patients who come into an emergency department with respiratory syndromes that are undifferentiated on presentation. A patient can come in with respiratory extremis and an abnormal chest X-ray, and ultimately, it takes some time to sort out whether that's a fluid issue, that's a COPD exacerbation, that's an ammonia, that's an exacerbation of underlying chronic lung disease. And the worry is that sometimes four hours is not enough time to make that clear. And so what happened in practice was that in response to that quality metric, there was a large increase in patients with undifferentiated respiratory syndromes who were being given antibiotics. So it was a very well-intentioned initiative to try to improve the timeliness of treatment for those who have proven but in practice, it turned out to be very difficult to apply with any kind of diagnostic precision or acumen. So it led to a documented increase in overprescribing of antibiotics that weren't warranted for many patients. How difficult would it be to build monitoring or self-adjustment into such a mandate to account for that possible outcome? For pneumonia or for sepsis? For either. I think it's an area that needs to be actively explored. I do think that if we as a nation, do continue to move forward with sepsis protocols that we should be attentive to rates of overtreatment as well as undertreatment. And I think what that means is that an institution that has a protocol in place should take stock at regular intervals to work out how many patients got put onto a sepsis protocol and how many of those patients now in retrospect, in the light of day, actually turned out to have infections and therefore benefited from the intervention and how many did not. How many extra central lines were placed or ICU beds occupied or excessive broad-spectrum antibiotics were prescribed that turned out not to be necessary. We don't have a standard right now as to what the right rate of overtreatment is. I think we can all appreciate that some degree of overtreatment probably is appropriate, maybe equivalent to the old surgeon's idea that if you weren't doing some number of appendectomies on people who actually didn't have appendicitis, that you were being too cautious in your diagnosis. I think we can accept some degree of overtreatment for sepsis is appropriate, so we don't miss out on patients who do have sepsis. But what is that rate? And how does one place compare to another? If you were to find that the majority of the patients you were treating did not have sepsis, or that the proportion of patients you were treating without sepsis was greater than compared to peers, that would be a signal that the triggers for your protocol are too liberal. A recent research article by the Process Investigators shows that protocol-based sepsis care actually does not improve outcomes. Do you think those results are going to have an effect on policy? I think the policy implication of that study is still unclear. Let me say that I thought there was a terrific study that required a great deal of organization and expertise and dedication from the investigators to execute, and it's been very interesting. 
But there are a few reasons why I don't think that study actually gives us a bottom line answer as to whether protocols are beneficial or not. And the key issue over here was that in that study, they had three different arms. There was usual care, there was a standard protocol, and then there was a souped-up protocol that required extra intervention. And patients were randomized to one of those three protocols, but here's the key piece. Those protocols or the usual care were all implemented by the same hand-picked clinicians in the same emergency department who were also implementing the other protocols for other patients. In other words, that study was only conducted amongst a subset of hospitals and clinicians who were deeply knowledgeable about sepsis care, who cared deeply about sepsis care, and were probably really good at it. And therefore, the usual care provided by those clinicians in those hospitals probably is better than not reflective of standard practice in other hospitals, other unselected hospitals across the country. And so our read on usual care for that study is probably not necessarily reflective of normative practice. And therefore, I would not say that the bottom line conclusion of that study is throw sepsis protocols out or throw bundles out. I think that's somebody simply telling us that the more souped-up enhanced versions of protocols probably do not add additional value beyond a more basic protocol. Finally, what do you think are ways that we can combat the unintended consequences of some of these protocol-based mandates? I think one thing is to try to help people better appreciate the limitations of the science of sepsis diagnosis, of sepsis surveillance. And one of our major points with the limitations of sepsis surveillance is that not only does that not give us a true read on whether we are having an increasing problem with sepsis in this country or not, but also gets in the way of our capacity to be able to monitor the consequences of the implementation of sepsis protocols. We can't tell if the sepsis protocols are going to be making a difference or not, again, because of our limitations of strategies to track patients. I think having policymakers and consumers groups aware of that limitation, I think, is an important thing to do. Thereafter, though, I think the other priorities would be that if we do move protocols, we have to come up with ways to try to assess the downstream unintended consequences of them. That in future studies that look at protocols, we don't only want to know what the mortality rate is for the individuals in those studies. We also want to know what happened to the hospital population at large with more antibiotics being distributed, with fewer ICU beds to go around, potentially with more iatrogenic complications. We need to monitor those downstream implications as well. And then I think there's a role over here for more education for all of us, for clinicians and for the public and for policymakers. For clinicians, we need to know what best practices currently are and to try to practice to the best of our abilities. For the public, fully believe that helping the public better understand what is sepsis and what is early sepsis so that they can try to present to medical attention sooner and, if need be, even alert their providers to the possibility of sepsis is wise because... I think better sepsis care for community-onset sepsis is going to have to be a partnership between the clinician community and the patient community. And then for regulators, I think one of the things that's come out through our conversation is that we have enormous gaps in knowledge. So to the extent that regulators can focus on increased funding, increased education, as opposed to forced physician behaviors, I think that would also be to our mutual benefit. Thank you, Dr. Klompfus.